Hi, everybody. It's Peter Bassler with ESEC Lending back for another episode of ESEC Lending Insights podcast. And I'm joined by my familiar co-host, Brooke Gilman. How you doing, Brooke? I'm good. How are you? It's early. It's early. Brooke maybe get up at 6.30 today because she's got some clients who have different time zones. So just in fairness, I've already had client calls and have been working for a little while. So, you know, I don't know what took you so long to get on this Zoom. Yeah. Brooke works harder than me for anyone who questions that. So <laughs> now that we've got that behind us, Brooke, it's been a crazy year. I mean, who would have thought that podcasting was something we were going to do, let alone that we've done 21 or this is our 21st podcast. Before this whole pandemic, we spent a lot of time on planes, conferences, meeting clients, going to dinners, that kind of thing. And we had to rethink kind of what we're doing. I don't know what your thoughts are, but it's been kind of a wild ride. Yeah, I did not know we'd be podcasting this year. I'm not sure I even really was a listener of podcasts before this year, to be honest. I now listen to all sorts of podcasts, but you have to fill your time somehow, I guess. Obviously, we keep busy enough with work, but... We chat with each other enough throughout the day. So we figured we might as well start recording some of these conversations, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I like the casual part of it. It's a good way to push out content and ideas to our clients and friends out there. And hopefully it's been a good experience. And I certainly think we should continue doing it. Definitely. I think there's a lot more to talk about and hopefully 2021 will be a good positive year for securities lending where we can bring a lot more interesting commentary and content to everyone. Great. Well, let's look back a little bit before we introduce our last podcast. Yeah. What was your favorite topic from our list of 21? Well, I'll tell you what my favorite is, and it probably wouldn't have been an easy call before our podcasting adventures, but proxy and ESG. I mean, I can't tell you how often that's coming up these days. And to do a discussion on that with our experts at ISS, I thought was great. And I hope the audience appreciated it because I think it's highly relevant right now and really gives people the ability to manage a strong ESG program, but still make money from SEC lending. I think that's critical going forward. Definitely. I also think the other ones that could be worth tuning in for listeners that didn't follow us along the way, there's two out there. One being our conversation with Jim around what matters to borrowers. And then I actually enjoyed also talking to Jim about what matters to lenders, mainly because most of our conversations, we're always trying to pull information out of Jim's brain and having Jim listen to us about what matters to our clients and lenders and what borrowers should be keeping in mind was fun. Yeah, I think both sides need to really understand what the other side needs, wants, and is looking for in order to be better, quote unquote, partners in this space. Yeah. So I agree with you. And so for next year, our new season, our season two, in terms of topics, it'd be great to hear from our listeners what they would like us to cover. I know that right off the bat, we should probably start thinking about new markets. Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of progress with new markets in 2020. I think a lot of that activity was put on the back burner, but I do think that we'll see a lot of momentum next year around new lending markets. So we probably should make sure we hit that one early on. But do you think there's any other topics that you're thinking of? I think it'd be good to talk about alternative collateral a little bit more because I think that's really a big deal. I think borrowers want to pledge what they're long, and sometimes that's not necessarily easy for lenders to take. So I think alternative collateral, I think alternative counterparties. I mean, I know we're big on peer-to-peer. I think some of that might be interesting. And maybe even some just real specifics like the IPO market, how that affects securities lending or lending very specific securities that might be somewhat complicated. I don't know, maybe some educational pieces like that, but obviously we want to hear from other people on what they want to talk about and we will certainly oblige. 
So let's get started for this podcast, for this last one of the season and last one of this calendar year. Peter and I turned it over to our friend and colleague over in London, Simon Lee, to chat with Jim Maroney about how revenues compare this year versus last year. And then more importantly, what might we see materialize next year from 2021? And so I thought it was interesting. Peter and I have had a chance to already listen to their podcast. So we're in that position of knowing what they're going to be saying, but I think that Jim's views on what will happen next year in terms of what borrowers are going to be focused on. He really spent some time walking us through what he thinks will be important to the market and to borrowers, but also gave a pretty rosy outlook. So I'm excited to see if that materializes. I'm nervous because, of course, we always joke that Jim's often wrong more than he's right in his predictions, but I'm rooting for him to be correct this time. The preview for everyone is he thinks there's some upside for next year and he concluded that this time next year when we're reflecting back on how 2021 compares to 2020, he does think it's going to be a positive revenue story, which is going to be appreciated by all ourselves included and our clients are going to care about that too. So let's roll it. So first question, I've got a bunch of questions here and the first two more high level macro type questions. Revenues 2020 compared to 19, broad industry revenues are down. What would you say are the primary factors behind that and appreciate that that could be a a fairly long response? So if you were to highlight the top two or three reasons why at a broad industry level, revenues 2020 are off 19. Mm, My answer probably varies by region. So short sale bans were part of the reason. Revenues down in 2020 versus 19. Comparison is another reason. So if you look at the US year over year is a tough comparison. You had a number of I think the stat was, I was using broad market statistics, there were four or five names making a significant amount of revenue, representing almost 80% of the U.S. revenue. Same metrics, there was just one this year in that same kind of bucket of revenue. So it's just down quite a bit year over year. You didn't have big names like Beyond Meat and the like. But the short sale bands, certainly in Asia, have impact region quite a bit. Obviously, Korea, which is going to coming up on a year but there are a number of other short sale bans. Malaysia comes off at the end of this year. Sorry about that. So I think short sale bans hurt that region. Certainly in Europe, that's also the case. There are any number of short sale bans, Italy, France, Belgium, Spain, I think Turkey. I might be missing a couple. So that didn't help. You know, it's been a roller coaster ride in 2020, revenues down, but Q2 is fantastic. And so you take a look at some of these large caps that were heavily shorted globally, airlines almost in every market absolutely smoked in April. Depends on the window you look at, but your mark to market was down 20% from March to April, maybe 30%. And so we accrue revenue in SEC lending off of market value. And so that hurt revenue quite a bit. And then it gradually came back. But as it came back globally, we've seen very little interest to take risk on the short side. Nobody wants to get in front of the US Fed or the EU in terms of supporting the market. I mean, you can even look at corporate bonds, which I think is one of the things we were going to talk about, completely supported throughout the globe from a credit perspective to support markets and market issuers. And nobody wants to short credit here, or at least leading up until the end of this year. We haven't seen shorting in the credit space. I think that kind of summarizes, you have a year where volatility is through the roof, yet we're generating less revenue year over year. It doesn't seem to tie out, but we really had one good quarter. Q1 was fairly weak, which has been the case from a directional standpoint. And then Q3 and Q4 have been snoozers as well. But I think we're set up nicely for next year. 
So those issues and all those factors causing that are arguably one-offs-ish, short-selling bans, the ones that are open still coming off next year. Those lack of US specials arguably could be COVID-driven. Yeah. And ordinarily, just as a matter of course, you'd expect more securities in the US to be trading at super special levels than we've seen today. So if you go back prior to 19, you would still have a reasonable number of securities trading at those levels in the US. But you mentioned volatility. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because clearly in the Q1, the markets were incredibly volatile and we saw that in cash spread as well as securities lending fees. Mm -hmm. If you were to look at the broad equity markets, summer into Q3, listing this morning, November was the strongest market across the globe in equities for many, many years. That suggests a very, albeit bullish, a very benign market. Yeah. But you often hear commentary on the volatility of 2020. So are you referring to specific pockets of volatility or the market more broadly? So using the VIX as a measure, it was at historic lows the end of last year. And spiked in March, obviously, when the market sold off, mm-hmm. went up tenfold, went from eight to 80. But it happened very, very fast. And then the grind back happened on a historic basis very quickly, but it was one way. It's unhealthy volatility that we've had. I guess that's a fair way to describe it. Unhealthy over, vol- over a short period. Yeah. Anytime things happen too quickly, it scares market participants. It doesn't beg new activity or new risk taking. It happens too fast. It has to be predictable. So the volatility we had this year has left us at slightly higher levels than we were this time last year. But the volatility was a huge spike up and then a drift down over the next four months, all one way. We need two-way volatility. So vol is a spike, is measuring kind of the movement. It's not necessarily down, which obviously the VIX tracks the spike down. They're inversely correlated. But I think volatility up and down If you measure it over a year, if we have up and down, up and down, we're going to be around a VIX of 30. If it continues to go one way, VIX will drop or it'll spike. So fair to say, if anyone's commenting on volatility in the market this year, they're referencing that period end of Q1 into Q2, as opposed to the market or the Canada year more broadly. Yes, they'd be referencing that spike to 80 and then that bleed all the way back down to the low 20s where we are today from a VIX measurement. But that's all elevated levels, but it's at a time where that 80 scared people away. And then you see governments around the world supporting their markets, their securities markets. Nobody wants to make fundamental bets on a company when macro events are going to come in and steal the show, move a market one way, even though you could be completely right about the economics. If governments are in supporting their markets, you're going to be wrong. If you get bailouts of airlines globally, or even you get a bailout in Germany, you're going to see kind of German airlines lifted. So even if they're run poorly or look like they should be good shorts, people have been staying away. In general, that's true. I mean, there's still a fair amount of revenue being generated from securities lending, and much of that is directional lending, so where people are long short. So I think it's unfair to say that it's a terrible year. Just we had hoped for a lot more. And I remain optimistic. I think there's a lot of reasons why next year is set up nicely. And we're starting to see that here. That was going to be my next question. Taking the various one-off events out of the equation, looking at next year and finish off on this year's commentary. Yeah. What have the last two, three, four weeks looked like? And is that a good proxy for what 
January, February looks like? Well, take the first half first. The last two, three, four weeks have been good. We've seen an improvement in spreads um, across the globe. We've seen a number of scripts and placements and right issuances in all the developed markets. And so that feels pretty good. M&A is picking up every Monday. There's a handful of stories in the paper. A lot of them are using their stock as currency. So that's good for us. There's always arbitrage there and, and ways to make money from security lending there. So outside of the deals, there's IPOs. That market feels open. I talked a little bit about corporate bonds. It feels to me, and I think people are going to expect default rates to increase over the next two or three quarters, maybe even further out than that, could see quite high default rates. And so that also sets up nicely for securities lending and the opportunity to make money from shorting. I think there's market short sell bans that are coming off. Malaysia, we've already seen. That's December 31st, where they relax those short sell restrictions. We've already seen demand to borrow pick up ahead of that. Six weeks in advance, actually, we saw almost all of our supply get lifted on names that mattered in Malaysia. I expect similar activity, even to a greater degree, with Korea at the end of March, if they do, in fact, lift it on all large and small caps in Korea. So all that sets us up. Whether there's follow through or not, I don't know. I think the stimulus package in the States needs to come and go to get the long shorts back involved. And as Korea goes, it seems like Asia goes one thing we did see, Simon, in Asia, right back when the crisis hit, is that a lot of the borrowing went onshore in Japan, most notably. That happened in March, April, May, and then continued throughout 2020. We need this trend to reverse to start getting back to the levels of revenue that we have enjoyed in Asia. It was a big shift. And historically, over the last, call it six, seven, eight quarters, we've seen more borrowing from outside than onshore in Japan. And, and it flipped this year and remains flipped. So... We need that trend to reverse. So it sounds like these last few weeks, you are expecting a revenue pickup or a bump to a degree. Yeah, we've seen it in the program for sure. Yeah. So next year, looking at the broader market environment and some bigger picture questions, when you're talking to your borrowing counterparties, what are the themes that they're telling you about their individual strategy and their plans for next year? Yeah, that conversation has just begun over a couple of weeks I think there was a lot of focus, at least with the New York broker community, a lot of focus on the election. But now that it's over, most of the chat is around collateral, collateral expansion, funding for them of what is difficult to fund or unfunded at this point. So a lot of the primes are either required to or prefer to self-fund. And so if they're able to give us expanded collateral, so in the equity space, that would be ADRs, ETFs, SPACs, maybe even China A shares. In the bond space, it would be investment grade, high yield bonds, convertible bonds, a lot of convertible bonds being issued now, both in Europe and here in the States. So there's a need to fund those. Is that a shift from this year or is that just a continuation yeah. of what you were hearing this year? This year was a pause from that trend of non-cash. Okay. Back in March, it became let's service our clients on the prime side during the huge market disruption. Globally, everybody just wanted to secure clients and service them in a way that was profitable for the firms and de-emphasized getting assets off their balance sheet and self-funding. And so now it's come back to a more normal environment. A lot of chat about that. A little bit of chat about same themes. It's kind of reg arb or regulatory adherence. Talk about pledge. That's important to more and more brokers. Pledge seems to have a pledge structure versus transfer seems to have some traction, whereas CCPs haven't to this point gotten a whole lot of traction. I suspect Pledge will be an axe for many PBs next year. And that was going to be one of my next questions, was what you were hearing about Pledge and CCPs. Fair to say, not much on the CCP front, but a lot more on the Pledge front. 
Mm, yeah. At CCP, I think from what I understand, Urex doesn't have a whole lot of traction. Actually, not the volumes they had hoped for. So we'll see where that goes. DTC is targeting Q3 for their equity solution in the CCP space. CCPs are one of the many fixes for the primes, but CCPs for a lot of the agent lenders, ourselves not included, do well with CCPs from a relief standpoint, not just RWA, but single counterparty risk. And so if it remains a solution that both sides want, maybe CCPs become the place to go. But from a beneficial owner standpoint, there's not a whole lot. It's diversification, I guess, into a good counterparty, but not a whole lot of uplift other than that. I don't know. We'll see where CCPs go. I think pledge were there already and CCPs were not. Off the back of those borrower conversations, aside from their own financing requirements, are they giving any indication as to where they see the hedge fund community going 2021, whether that will be a driver in terms of volume, in terms of increased levels of shorting? Yeah. From my perspective and the seat that I'm in, the best indication of future activity for hedge funds and for PBs can be seen through our exclusives. I think that they're one-year bets that a borrower has to place on expected volume and need to borrow stock if they're going to buy a portfolio up front. And we've had 2020, while it's been miserable for many reasons, we had a number of very, very successful auctions that we were happy with that I think show how optimistic some of the very large primes are feeling about future business, certainly their future business. And so both in the States as well as kind of small caps globally, and certainly in emerging markets on the equity side, we saw fantastic participation and strong year over year and auction over auction bids. So I think that's a good indication that borrowers think next year could be a good year for activity. And that would mean more traditional long short activity that's balanced as opposed to using leverage to get two times long. A question with a more of a focus on European markets, 2021 dividends. Yeah. And I guess you can't really answer that one without addressing 2020 dividends. Yeah. Clearly a number of dividends cancelled this year. So I guess probably a more accurate question is how does 2021 look compared to 2019? given that 2020 was such an unusual period. Summarize 2020 yeah. dividends. So, like you said, a lot of divs were canceled. In and of itself is bad. Many were cut. A lot of these structures where people will have a need to borrow over record, on the other side, include hedges that are synthetic sometimes in nature. And so when you're doing futures or options on one side and a div gets cut, you can't get out of the other side of that trade. So I think a lot of folks who generally will participate in that space didn't. I think we saw and continue to see higher supply in France, lower supply in Norway. And so that leads to crummier all-ins in France and better all-ins in Norway and stuff. I think we expect to continue to see UK scripts and scripts in general announced as paying dividends via your distribution, albeit dilutive, is something that makes sense in this market. And I think we'll see more of it. So to the extent that we can get cash elects there, I think there's opportunity to make money. So I'm not over the moon about expectations next year. There's only a handful of markets left that really have value from a securities lending standpoint. The Scandies, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Spain, France, a little bit in Italy. But outside of that, it continues to trend the same way it has for a number of years. It's a much smaller piece of the overall pie of securities lending revenue than it has in yeah. today versus, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know, but I think it's more- but some improvement from 2020 at this stage. I think so. Those companies are cancelled. Are they indicating they're paying? Some have already come back. We've seen a couple okay. of, uh, in the last couple of weeks in Norway announce dividends. And so- 
Yeah, most economists are calling for strong markets globally. We're already seeing it in Asia. If you use COVID as a barometer, it started in Asia, moved to Europe, and then to the US. And so the recovery should do the same. I think there's a lot of optimism about large cap companies globally. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to think we'll see bigger dividends, we'll see more increased dividends. And so in those handful of markets where you still get paid on that dip trade, I think there's opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And finishing up on a couple of specific trades or a couple of specific areas of borrower demand, pay for hold. Topic that in my world has come up a few times recently, maybe more so than in months gone by. Is that something you are seeing having more conversations on? Yeah. I'm curious, what regions are you hearing fee-for-hold discussions around or questions about? European institutions, European lenders. Yeah. Fee-for-hold by itself, same-day markets, it makes no sense, right? If you're a lender, unless you're getting paid for that fee-for-hold, unless it's comparable to what you'd make otherwise, or it's without question, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Other markets, it does. From a borrower standpoint, the most interest we've seen has been embedded in other structures. So we see fee-for-holds embedded in what would be contingencies that borrowers have, where they think in the future they're going to have a need for a repo, a need for a borrow, a need for funding. And to get that, they'll pay to hold. And it's either pay to hold structure. It's not necessarily at a QCIP or a basket level. So that's the interest we've seen. We always see a borrow interest on pay for hold out of Asia across all markets. Um, Some of them, it's almost a strategy from a PB's perspective as to a way to make sure they're adhering to local market rules. That's down to shortened or relatively short uh, settlement timeframes in Asia and more punitive charges for fails, buy-ins, fail penalties and the like. Yep, exactly. Okay. And another way around that is an exclusive. So for us, I think when borrowers look to ESEC and they look to our team here, fee-for-holds probably aren't as big a conversation if as they might be away from us because our solution for fee-for-holds is selling as exclusive. So it affects the same end game for a borrower, I think. So probably a different answer than you might hear from somebody in my seat at a different agent lender. And lastly, you've mentioned it a couple of times, corporate bonds. I guess a two-parter there. What are the primary drivers behind borrower demand for corporate bonds? What's the trade that's driving that borrow? And how much of a difference do you see in the US market compared to Europe in terms of issuance and in terms of demand? Yeah, so demand drivers, it's a bet on credit, can be an outright bet or it can be a cap structure bet. So you can be long corporate bonds and short the equity or vice versa. You could be short the long bonds in a credit structure and long the short bonds. You know what I mean? It's a curve play on a credit. So you see quite a bit of that in general, and it seems much more liquid to me in the US than it does in Europe. So we're able to get better spreads with lower utilization in Europe than we are in the US. US is more of a volume game. The problem with corporate bonds, they're over the counter. So there's no market there. So it becomes very difficult. It's by appointment in many cases, both a borrow and then covering a borrow. And so you have to be quite careful with that. But there is spread there, but up to a point. So the short of corporate bond, you've got to cover both the cost to borrow that bond as well as the coupon. So it gets expensive and you have options. Many times an issuer has... 10, 15, 100 bonds issued, depending on the size of the company. Whereas if you're playing in the equity space, you've got one, maybe two options to get short that credit in the equity space. So in corporate bonds, if it gets too expensive, you can cover and go somewhere else on the curve and get pretty close to the same net risk exposure. So I think it's a space to be. It feels to me as we speak to PBs, 
a number of them are increasing their focus on corporate bonds. So I think there is a general thought that credit shorting could become important to the PBs and certainly would then be important to us. Corporate bonds from a risk weighting standpoint from a lender can get expensive. For us, it doesn't, our structure is a little bit different. So for us, it's less meaningful, but I think there's going to be a repricing in corporate bonds across the street, which could mean wider fees for lending the same assets next year, as you saw relative to the last couple of years. I could be wrong about that, but this feels to me like there's going to be some pricing power there. So the end of the year is in sight. Yeah, let's put this one to bed, Simon. Let's move on. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you were talking quite optimistically about the activities of the last two or three weeks and, and what that might mean for revenue, what that might mean for early part of next year. Do you want to summarize that, reiterate it? So year to date through September, US was down 5%. Asia and Europe were down slightly more than 20% revenue year over year. Last October, November, so the last two months, we are probably up 5 7%. I think we continue with that trend and grow on it. So I think it'll be very collateral dependent. So there will be folks who, if you're intrinsic value only, no GC lending, you got to own the right stocks. It's a handful of names that drive revenue in each market. But if you're a more balanced lender who can take cash and non-cash, can take various types of non-cash, interested in various different types of structures, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So maybe a year of the have and have nots in terms of securities lending revenue. I wouldn't want to take a guess at, at how much up, but I would say we're doing this same podcast in a year. We'll say that was a pretty good year relative to 2020. That wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> I guess. We haven't had that opportunity to say that in any number of years. It's either down or marginally up. But it does feel that there is actually something trending currently, which hasn't been the case this year. This year, you've had volatility, followed by a pretty benign market through most of the year. Now you are seeing something trending in a positive direction. Yeah. I also hope we're talking about China this time next year. A couple new markets would be nice for us as well, if you can do anything about that. We'll do our best. Okay, great. Well, I think that was a great discussion with Simon and Jim, and I'm usually skeptical of podcasts that I'm not participating in, but they did a great job. And to me, a couple of the key themes that play well as we look ahead are their comments around Asia, which was weak this year, and the short sell bans, which kind of held things back. Those are coming off, as they point out. And I think that hopefully can be a boom to an area that had been a bright spot in securities lending. So I think that's really exciting. In addition to that, I think the concept or the view that we see from our exclusives in our auctions, which is really forward thinking or forward predicting by the borrower view, is also encouraging. And we'll have elections behind us, stimulus hopefully will be behind us, and maybe we'll have more of a regular market where a lot of people have different views on things. So anyway, I thought that was a great discussion, a great way to wrap up the year. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Brooke. Yeah. And like I said at the intro, I'm hopeful that next year will be a positive in terms of revenue uptick and demand for securities lending. It definitely feels like it's heading in the right direction at this point. And so hopefully we'll see that materialize. And as Jim notes, we need volatility in the market, but we need healthy volatility and predictable volatility. And so hopefully, at least in the U.S., with some of the changes and getting past stimulus and also the incoming new administration, hopefully some of that can return and we can see an increase in securities lending revenues year over year for the greater good. 
looking forward to seeing how it plays out over the coming year. We'll see how many podcasts we get in between now and this time next year, but yeah, looking forward. And so with that, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this wild ride in 2020 and being willing to bear with us as we attempt to start podcasting. So we appreciate that. We do look forward to having your feedback and your contributions in terms of topics that you'd like us to address next year. And in the meantime, we hope everyone has a happy holiday period and safe new year and here's to good health and good securities lending revenues in 2021. So thanks all. Talk to y'all soon.